and welcome to How I Survived This, the totally badass and dramatic podcast, where we dive into the good, the not so good, and the totally badass journeys of women in the arts. I'm your host, Heather Corrigan. We're here today to learn about each of my guests' unique journeys, from their wins to their darkest hours and all of the dramatic moments in between. On today's episode, we have the honor of sitting down to talk with a writer, director, actor, singer, narrator, and voiceover artist, Ashley Griffin, who, in addition to all of these titles, is also the first person in history to be nominated for a major award for both playing and directing Hamlet for a theatrical production. As a performer, Ashley has appeared on and off Broadway at the Gershwin Theater, Lincoln Center, Playwrights Horizons, Manhattan Theater Club, and the Public Theater, as well as on TV and film. Her writing includes the viral musical parody of Twilight, Forever Deadward, as well as novels with her latest being Spindle. Her play, The Opposite of Love, had a reading at New York Rep, and her most recent off-Broadway production, Trial, played at ATA and was directed by Lori Petty, and won the Well Life Network Award and a County Commendation. Both productions are now in talks to return to the stage. Woo! Welcome, Ashley. Thank you so much. I'm so honored to be here. Oh, the honor is all ours. <laughs> uh, it's nice to finally meet you. I always have this moment where I'm like, are you sure we don't know each other? Because of living in that. do. <laughs> probably, but I don't know. Uh, it's lovely to meet you. And thank you so thank much you. for giving us your time today. Because based on what I just said, <laughs> you have a lot <laughs> going on. Yeah, I'm a little a little busy, but I'm honored that you asked me and we definitely know each other now and I'm really excited to get to chat with you. Me too, absolutely. Why don't I just jump right in and sort of ask how and why did you decide to get into acting as a career? Let's start at the very beginning. A very good place to start. Um I was I was kind of born knowing that this is what I wanted to do. I was one of those, you know, kids that this is this is just all I ever wanted to do. Anytime a babysitter would come over, all we would do is put on shows in the living room and I'd be directing them and telling them what to say. Before I could write on my own, I would wrangle other people into transcribing stories for me. I just was always a storyteller and it's just always what I knew that I wanted to do. I was really fortunate to be born and raised in LA. So it's a great place to do it. I don't come from an entertainment family, but all I was doing was, you know, putting on shows in the living room. I think I had like two rules growing up because I was a very good, I'm a very Hermione Grangery kind of person. I mean, the gotcha. teachers at school gave me that nickname. It's very accurate. Um, my two rules growing up were you can't perform in the living room before seven o'clock in the morning and you can't wear costumes or fancy party dresses to preschool. Like th those were my rules. That was it? That, that was, was I mean, I was a very good kid, but I broke those two rules frequently. Um, I was wondering. Yeah. It was just what I always knew I wanted to do. I wanted to hear stories. I wanted to tell stories. I wanted to put them on with my whole body and I wanted to create them and tell them. And when I was really little, my mom got me like the DVD of old um, Broadway performances on the Ed Sullivan show. And I discovered Anthony Newley, who most people now would probably know for writing the music to Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. 
but he was a performer and writer, and he was the first person in history nominated for Tony for best book of a musical, best score, and best actor for the same show in the same year. And I found that out and I saw him perform in the Ed Sullivan show and was like, I want to be the first female Anthony Newley. And that was just, that was it. And that was what I always knew that I wanted to do. Oh my gosh. So from a very early age, you were not only enamored with, you know, I think a lot of kids are enamored with performing, but you also Mm -hmm. were like, I'm going to write a musical (laughs) and I'm going to write a story and it's also going to win a Tony. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I liked doing, using multiple vocabularies as part of storytelling. And I grew up in a really wonderful rep company where there was a husband and wife co-artistic directors, and they also directed and they also wrote some of the original shows that were done. So the idea of being a multi-hyphenate, it was a common thing for me to experience. And it was just, it was just something that I always really gravitated to and really enjoyed. And I, I was never really interested with getting attention I didn't want to be like the center of attention. Look at me. That's why I want to perform. I, mm. I don't know. There was something about stories that helped me synthesize the world around me. And I just, I wanted to be in the center of it with like my whole being. And I wanted to explore that and discover things with it. And it was, it was this very holistic thing from a very young age that I know is, is a little unusual, but um, it's just sort of how I showed up on this planet. Yeah. No, I think it's lovely that that you knew from an early age that it wasn't about performance, that it was about mm-hmm. storytelling and yeah. that it was about how you were going to walk through the world. Mm-hmm. And that's really cool. So even though you say your parents, your family, your immediate family was not associated with the entertainment industry, you happened to be in L.A., it sounds like they were immediately supportive of this. Yeah, well, m- well, my mom was a classical ballet dancer, so that's sort of the one connection. Um, so that's how I started doing dance, which I also always did and loved. Um, but it, it, it's great because I had the opposite of a stage mom. Um, not and not meaning somebody. My mom is incredibly, incredibly supportive, but meaning that it was never about her wanting this for me or pushing me into anything. She's just the most wonderful mom and incredibly supportive. And it started where you know being very young and all I would do is, you know, putting on shows at some point, my mom was like, I need a break. I just, I, I need a break. So she put me in like a little kid's acting class. And I was like, I found my people. Um, <laughs> and so that's how I started training. And then I really did train and I was really into it. And then I was the one that's like, you know, I really want to do this and I want an agent and I want to do this, that, and the other. And she's like, okay, well, you know, it's going to be a lot of driving and it's, you know, it's a lot more than you think it is. I'm no, no, I really want to do it. And so we ended up getting an agent, but I, I feel like this story really encapsulates it. There was one day, I think I was in like second grade or something. We got, it was a half day. We got out of school early. My mom picked me up and she said, now your agent called and there's an audition in like an hour and a half, but you got out of school early. We could go to Disneyland. And I said, no, I want to go on the audition. And she was like, you know, we could just say you're not available and we could go to Disneyland. I'm like, no, I want to go to the audition. So in that sense, it was, it was the perfect relationship for that. I felt, I felt very supported. I felt very cared for. I felt very looked out for, you know, I was a child actor in LA and I am very fortunate that I had a phenomenal experience. And that is because of my mom and the way that she took care of me. And also the fact that I was actually trained from a young age. And so I was, I was walking into situations, understanding, you know, 
what acting was and what the craft was and going in as an actor, not just a precocious child who was sort of getting manipulated into things. But I, I have other friends who were child actors that have horror stories. So my mom was incredibly supportive, um, did not push me in any way, shape or form, but just, you know, as any parent that's supportive of their children exploring things that interest them. And I did other things too. I love the ocean. I love swimming. I surf. Um, I, you know, love nature. I love gardening. I I love all that stuff. So it was, it, I felt very well-rounded, but very supported in what I just knew was what I wanted to do. Yeah. And you continued to stay. And I know that some child actors don't, but you continued to stay in school. Um, Mm -hmm. So you had that sort of taste of normalcy as well as being able to run into this world that you really wanted to be a part of. Um, And then also what sounds like stability and support of your loving and supportive family. Yeah, for sure. Which is really key. Oh, so so we have this like beautiful beginning to, to your acting career. And then did you go to college for more training in acting? Um, Because I know that sometimes that's where people start to be like, this is what I'm going to do, mom and dad. (laughs) Yeah. You had already announced that, so. For sure. I do want to throw in, and unfortunately, I can't go into too much specific detail about it. Um, I have an incredible mom. All of what you just said was very true. I did go through a lot of really difficult experiences as a child in my personal life. Um, So it there were things about my childhood that were just phenomenal. And there were things about my childhood that were hell on earth. Um, and that comes into play with, you know, me being an artist and a creator and stuff. So it was this dichotomy and being able to be an artist and storytelling was one of the things that really saved me and helped me. So it was this interesting dichotomy of both those things happening, but Basically, I continued um, performing professionally. I wrote my first musical in third grade for my third grade class to put on. I used to think I would never be able to be a professional writer because I started performing professionally at five and I didn't write my first full show until eight. So I was like, three years I lost. I'll never get that time back. I'll never get that. (laughs) I'll never get that training back. I'll never be able to catch up. Um, So I was always doing both of them concurrently. I went to an extraordinary performing arts high school, the Hamilton Academy of Music in Los Angeles, that it's changed a bit now. The same people aren't there, but at the time I will battle anybody that it was the best performing arts high school in the world. Um, And then I went to college. I went to the Boston Conservatory for a hot second and it was not the right place for me. And I quickly transferred to NYU and that's where I have my degree from. And I teach on occasion now. Oh, Oh, that's amazing. Wait, before we jump into NYU, (laughs) I think you pretty much already touched on it, but I find one of the things that is so remarkable about not only acting, if it's taught in the right way and pursued in the right way, but the arts in general, and also specifically writing or storytelling, is a way to find depth, meaning, healing, And almost sometimes maybe even a little bit of escape or as a child to find the way to move through difficult situations in a very healthy way. I just it's so incredible to me that, you know, you mentioned briefly and we do not need to dig into it at all, not having the most picturesque childhood, but that 
you were able to take what you already knew sounds like, what you already knew that you had a calling for and a love for, and then the world gets shaken around you like this broken snow globe, and you were able to dive further into the fantasy of the story that you wanted to tell or move through whatever you were going through by writing and playing and creating and imagining. And I just think that that had had to have had a huge impact on your well-being as you moved through those difficult times and then into young adulthood and into adulthood that you already had those skills and and tools in your toolbox that you were then able to bring them with you into your modern day life. Yeah, absolutely. That's beautifully put. And one of the things I also advocate for um, is, I mean, obviously it can be an escape for sure. And there's wonderful things about it being an escape, but one of the things that I find so important about stories, and I'm, I'm also, I'm very drawn to fairy tales and those kinds of things. And I know that um, in general, sometimes those kinds of stories can get a lot of flack for what people sort of think they're about. I love the quote by Neil Gaiman, fairy tales are more than true, not because they tell us that dragons exist, but because they tell us that dragons can be beaten. And so I would read these stories, not so much as an escape, but almost like as a guidebook about how to survive horrors in the world. I mean, if you really, I mean, I read the original Grimm's fairy tales cover to cover and I did too. All, and they're, they're yeah. not, they're not, um, I don't know. They're not all happy endings. <laughs> no, but, but there's, there's almost a spirituality in them. And there's a lot, there's metaphoric representations of, you know, what, what hope and love and all of these things are. And, and the fact that like, yeah, there are really difficult things in the world and how do we find our way through them. So I think that what I love about storytelling is it makes um, it makes the ethereal literally manifest. It gives metaphoric representation to things that are difficult to understand or talk about or comprehend. Um, and it gives us the opportunity to experience empathy and experience, you know, walking in someone else's shoes, which I think then allows us to come to our lives um, better, better equipped to sort of, you know, if I'm getting a little schmaltzy about it, but handle our real life hero's journey um, more educated and sort of almost with some practice under our belt. And that's one of the reasons that I I find, you know, fairy tales and mythology and C.S. Lewis and Madeline Lingle and all those kinds of stories really, really important and Mm -hmm. important to continue telling them because I feel like we've become very much a non-storytelling culture at large. You know, these are stories that used to unite all of us and, you know, we would tell them frequently and that was a thing. And and now, you know, we might all occasionally watch the same Netflix show, but storytelling and the importance of that as human beings is not as much something of most people's daily experience of life. And that's one of the reasons I feel very galvanized to be a storyteller. Yeah. Oh, 100%. (laughs) That's beautifully put. Oh, thank you. I heard someone say recently that the, um, in keeping with what you were talking about, about galvanizing community, that warriors in, you know, pre-books, pre-TV, pre-writing, that they would go out and go on the battlefield and then they would come back and as a tribe, as a community, they would storytell. They would reenact. They would 
tell the story of the battle that happened. And then it would bring the entire community or tribe together. And then that story would live, would have a heartbeat and it would live. I would imagine that it would um, strengthen the community, strengthen their bond, strengthen the tribe moving through uh, and the health of the community and also the individual on the inside and their own inner hero, warrior, et cetera, to move on through whatever they were going through. So I think it's absolutely correct that we don't give enough uh, credit where credit is due for the importance of storytelling. And then not only the importance of storytelling, but that that everybody's story has meaning and mm-hmm. that it doesn't have to be, you know, people tend to think that like, oh, I couldn't possibly, I couldn't possibly, myself included, I'm guilty of it as well. I couldn't possibly write anything. I don't have anything to say. Well, that's, that's not, that's not true. Uh, everybody has a story. And by telling your story, it does give you a certain sense of empathy to then hear somebody else's. So mm-hmm. then that sort of breaks down that wall and that barrier. That's incredible. Yeah. That's actually um, the reason that I wrote Trial, which I'm sure we'll get to as as we go on. But it's the most personal thing I've ever written, and it deals with a lot of the things that I went through. Um, and it was a really scary thing to write. But one of the reasons that I did was I didn't. This was right before the Me Too movement really took off. And I didn't hear anyone talking about the kinds of things I went through. And I felt very alone and, you know, I didn't really talk about it. And it was frustrating because it was not saying that it's something that defined me, but it was a large, you know, aspect of my experience. And I sort of was feeling like, well, if no one else, if no one else is talking about this, I guess I'll go out on a limb and I'll be the one talking about this because then at least there will be someone else for other people that might be out there that feel like there's nobody else sharing this. And through doing the show at every single performance or reading that we did, almost everyone in the audience would come up to me afterward. I went through this, a friend went through it, a family member went through it, and no one talks about it. And it Hmm. allowed some conversations to start, which I'm incredibly proud of and is very important to me about the show. And when I started working with Lori Petty, our incredible director, she was the first person that I had ever met who I consciously knew had gone through experiences not dissimilar to mine. And just having somebody there to talk to of like, oh, wow, yeah, you experienced that too. I'm not crazy, um, was so powerful. And so that's one of the real reasons that I wrote that play in the first place. Wow. Do you want to share any of your own experiences? Or perhaps with for our listeners, you could go into just a little bit of what trial is about? Sure. Um, I I would love to talk in detail about my experiences. It's not really safe for me to do so at the moment. So um, I can't go into too many experiences about that particular aspect. But suffice it to say that I um, experienced some really difficult things growing up with people close to me. And then in addition, like I hate to say it, probably practically every woman in the world, I've experienced other Me Too moments just in life with, you know, everything from casting directors to other people in the industry to just general people walking down the street. So yeah, unfortunately, I think it's 
it's a shared experience for a lot of people in the world. I mean, men and women mm-hmm. and, and non-binary folk on a, on a day-to-day level, the degree to which people have experienced like the big, awful, horrible thing that we would put in maybe like a Harvey Weinstein category, you know, varies a little bit, but it's, it's more common than I think people realize. But the trial is set in an afterlife that's represented as a corporate office building. And it's about a girl who died when she was 15 and she's been waiting for years, decades for her paperwork to go through corporate bureaucracy so that she can move on. And one day she's approached by somebody from upper management who tells her that the person who was indirectly responsible for her death has just died and the state of his soul is in question. And when that happens, there's a trial in the justice department and the person they did the most harm to in life serves as judge and jury. And she wants nothing to do with it, but they're like, it'll expedite your paperwork. So she's like, fine. So most of the play plays out in this courtroom in sort of our town style where all the evidence is reliving moments from their life. Um, And you come to find out that this person was her abuser and that she committed suicide when she was 15. And the piece is very much a very complex discourse on the nature of justice versus mercy and the complicated nature of what forgiveness is really when you really get down to the nitty gritty of it. And there's a, a twist at the end that sort of what we think has been going on is not exactly what's been going on. Um, but, but it's, it's a conversation about the, um, the really messy, complicated nature of forgiveness and justice versus mercy. Wow. Yeah. Well, it's a story that definitely need, needed to be, and needs to be told. I'm really glad that it is in talks to make its way back to the stage. Thank you. Me too. I care very much about it. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And that's what I mean, too. You probably had that moment at some point writing something as difficult and mm-hmm. close to your heart as that to think, oh, this could I possibly could I write this? What will happen? Or yeah. and then conversely, I have to write this. I have to tell this story. Mm-hmm. Um, and then look at just the amount of people who can relate to it. Mm-hmm. It's amazing. And yeah terrifyingly sad, but also incredible that it has to come out, right? Because if it doesn't get talked about, then it just gets swept under the rug and then it just gets run into society as something that's acceptable. And I think what this movement did, what your play has done, what the Harvey Weinstein trial, uh, I forgot the name of the movie that they just did about the trial. um, Oh, she said. She said. Yeah. All of these themes... (laughs) You know, I've heard you end up hearing people be like, oh, you know, how do I put this? Griping about it. And it's like, no, this this for far too long was acceptable, was yeah. just sort of woven into society as something that we we just lived with. And in many ways, I think the most difficult part, and I'll speak for myself, as a as a woman who who luckily didn't or hasn't had to the extreme an experience Mm -hmm. as some other women have had it makes me even question just some of the regular old behavioral patterns Mm -hmm. that I would then adapt in order to move through the world and how different would this world be how different would someone uh be 
moving through the world, had they known that that particular behavior by those people was just not acceptable and it was okay to speak up against it. Right. Just, I think the big thing is that it's okay to speak up against because that, I mean, that's the thing, like for, I mean, even, even now really, it's like in a lot of cases, like, well, what do you do? Mm-hmm. You know, like, what do what do you do when it happens? And, um, I think there's still a lot of work to be done about, um, moving oh, absolutely. forward with that as well. Oh, but. absolutely. No. And, and we need people like yourself writing about it, telling the story, pushing it forward, and then, and then being brave enough to talk about it too. Well, and people like you giving a platform for it to be discussed as well. So. Oh, well, thank yeah. you. Yeah. I, it's, it's so interesting because it's so quick how uh, your own, in I'll, again, I'll speak for myself, one's own insecurities about like, oh, I couldn't possibly talk about that because I, I don't, I haven't, I don't know anything about it. But then you realize that, no, we're all, we're all connected. We're all human. We all have similar wants, needs, experiences. Um, and they're, they're pretty, they're pretty basic when you get right down to it. And one of the great things about storytelling is that then you hear that story and it, it hits you. It's it's like you can reach that person in the back of the theater that mm-hmm. maybe didn't even know that they had possibly gone through something very similar to the character that was on that stage. It's really powerful mm-hmm. stuff. So I know you say you you sort of like came out of the womb knowing that you were going to be an actor. I was much the same. Shocker. Mm-hmm. Um, as you continue to move through, you know, your various levels of training, when you graduated from there, was there sort of this, um, okay, we graduated and now what moment, like a moment of despair or were you kind of well, launched into the career that you'd always dreamed of? You know, it's interesting because it was sort of both of those things simultaneously. I mean, I was that, I was that annoying person in college who showed up in college with an agent and equity card. You know, I, <laughs> I was, I was that girl. So I graduated with an agent and an equity card. Um, so on the one hand, there was a liberation to it of, I can, you know, fully pursue this. I don't have to sort of try to sneak out of classes to go on an audition or, or whatnot, which, you know, you're not really supposed to do, but I would save up all my sick days and use them to go on auditions. Um, and I sort of hit the ground running. I mean, also as a writer, I did a voluntary senior thesis project at NYU that very long story short, Stephen Schwartz was involved in. It got interest by a theater company and a director. So I was doing that. Like, I think a month after I graduated, I booked um, doing a Capital Fourth with Jason Alexander and the Rockettes that summer. And I had this theater that was interested in doing my show. So I kind of hit the ground running in terms of having some projects. What was really a lot was twofold. One was, you know, suddenly being completely responsible for financially supporting myself, which I mean, I was in college and I don't, I don't come from a family that has a lot of money. So, I mean, I had, I had loans and I wasn't, you know, being given a bunch of money and stuff, but I mean, I was in a dorm where I wasn't paying rent and, you know, I had a a side job that sort of covered my extra food. Um, but that idea of, you know, getting an apartment and having, you know, to pay rent and pay for all your other bills and expenses, it just suddenly launch into that. It's very scary. Mm-hmm. And also, you know, I am very much a Hermione Granger. I, I love school. There were frustrations about it, but to to suddenly not have that structure every day. I was going to um, say the structure of school, if you love school, is 
is something very scary to not have that. Yeah, well, and especially when you think of the fact that you've been in that structure since preschool, Mm -hmm. if you went to preschool, certainly since kindergarten. So from the age of five till like in my case, 2021, you have that structure every single day. And it, it, I think it takes a while to really adjust to my time is my own. Like, yeah, you have jobs and you need to, you know, go to your work and stuff, but my time is my own. I can, I need to give myself a structure. But the thing that surprised me was I, I was really expecting to just be really sad and kind of depressed when I graduated. Cause like I said, I love school. I, actually suddenly felt liberated in a lot of ways because I was suddenly like, oh, I can read all the books that I really want to read instead of, you know, these books that I didn't necessarily think were super necessary and didn't necessarily want to. And I can, you know, go to the dance class that I really love because it doesn't conflict with another class that I want to go to. Um, Mm -hmm. So it was a really interesting mix for me of both of those things. But I think it just for any human being takes you a while to adjust to the being an adult without that set schedule. Within the entertainment industry, you wear so many hats. I'm just curious, how do you separate, um, how do you separate those roles with the limited hours that you may have in a day? So how do you separate the role of like being creative and having to balance that with earning rent and a living wage? Because I think this is something that we don't really talk about all that often. It's not really taught. You've made this life for yourself. How... How do you do that? Um, It's challenging. And the truth is, I think everybody has a a different story about how they manage to do it. And it's ongoing. It's not like you suddenly have it figured out and then it's smooth sailing. One of the things that I made myself a promise about when I knew that, you know, I have to start getting a day job and doing all of that, which fortunately I've been able to hold to is I didn't for me personally, I didn't ever want to take a day job that was completely unrelated to the arts. Okay. I didn't want to be a server. I didn't, now that's not to say those aren't phenomenal day jobs and there, and you can make a lot more money doing them. And there's people I know who really enjoy doing it. So it's nothing against any other day jobs. Um, but for me, I just knew that it was going to help my heart and soul if, if my day jobs were connected to the arts somehow. So, um, you know, like when I first got out of college, I worked front of house at Broadway theaters in various Mm -hmm. capacities, which was delightful. I got to see all of the shows for free. There was a decent amount of downtime. So I've actually written a lot of my pieces in the lobbies of Broadway theaters um, because you're really only working before the show intermission and then afterward. Oh, that's Um, very Hermione Granger of you, actually. Yep. I, when I was in, In high school, earning some money, like to go to college, I worked as a library page at my local library, which actually partly inspired my second novel that's going to be coming out this year. And then I, I taught, I taught dance, I taught gymnastics, and then it would be interspersed with like, I'd get asked to go back and teach at NYU and I'd get asked to teach at other theater programs. I started getting into theater journalism. Um, and you know, acting at NYU or what, what are you, or I have taught Shakespeare and musical theater history at NYU. And, and then interspersed with, you know, booking gigs and and doing jobs in various capacities. It's not like I earned an enormous amount of money from any of those things, but it was enough to survive. And they were all things that even if they were kind of silly, were related to the arts in some capacity. Right. And they fed you. Yeah. And, and that, that was really important to me. 
And then I've, I'm also, I'm a really good structure of my time. And some of that's just how I am anyway, but a lot of it is from going to my amazing performing arts high school. I mean, I've literally never worked so hard as I did when I was in high school. School started at like 7, 16 in the morning. Mm-hmm. And we would go till the earliest we got out was like four sixteen, And then a lot of times we'd have rehearsal after that. And then I would go to outside dance classes. I was taking like four AP classes and studying in the car and studying in the dressing room. And then when we got into tech, we were there till like one in the morning and you have to study and you have to do all your homework. And I was like a straight A student. I became very, very aware of all the time that we have that we're not always aware of or conscious of. Mm -hmm. So, you know, time when you're riding in the subway is time, time that you can choose what to do with. And sometimes that choice is, I just need to veg out and listen to some music right now and just take some time, you know, but it's also time I can be writing. I can be learning lines. I can be doing X, Y, or Z. And I'm very fortunate that I, I really love what I do. I re I love writing. Writing is something that fortunately you can do anytime, anywhere, and you don't need other people to do it. It can be an isolating thing. And I love the opportunity to get in the rehearsal room because I love that collaboration, but I can write on the subway. I can write, type in notes on my phone on a break at work. I can write in my bedroom at two in the morning. I love acting. I love all of it. And so for me, it feels like a reward. So it's like, great, I'm going to, you know, go to my day job and I'm going to do the thing. And then when I get home, I get to write, I get to write all night. And so for me, it never felt like, oh gosh, I've got to, I've got to work on this project and I've got to schedule that. It's like, it's, it's like knowing there's like a bag of candy waiting for you at the end of the day. So that's how I always felt about it. And I've always felt passionate and excited about it. That's not to say there aren't days when you're like, I got a deadline. I just, I'm not feeling super motivated. I just got to get through it. But it, it always felt like a privilege and an excitement to me to get to pursue my art. And so it never felt like, oh gosh, I'm never going to be able to find the time to do all these things. It was just in any given moment. Yay. I have time now. And this is what I'm, I need to do this and that, and just being excited about it and utilizing my time as effectively as possible. Yeah. It's the reframing right? It's the reframing of what you get to do because there are only so many hours in the day. Everybody has the same sort of um, things that you need to do in order to survive. You have to work, you have Mm -hmm. to eat, you have to make enough money to pay rent and buy food. But Mm -hmm. what do, what you have just so inspiring is you've inspired me actually with these moments of downtime whether it's at your day job or whether it's, you know, on your weekend or in in your 10 minute break from your from your rehearsal, mm-hmm. what do you do with that 10 minutes and what you do with that 10 minutes actually matters. And it kind of sets up mm-hmm. uh, that repetitive behavior to um, now you say to yourself, I am tired, but I get to write. I get to storytell yeah. right now. Well, I mean, think of all the time when you're in school, when like you come home and you're like, oh gosh, I'm done with school. Oh, but I have to read that book that like, oh gosh, I really don't want to read it. Now it's like I come home, I can read whatever I want. And and like, and I'm aware that that's a privilege that I didn't always have my whole life. Mm-hmm. And I think also, and this is, I mean, I'm certainly not always effective of at doing this. And there, there are times when, you know, I feel down and depressed and whatnot, but I think even when you're working a day job, 
if you can find a way of how to utilize that for what you're interested in. So like, for example, working front of house at the Broadway shows, whenever I would get to interact with audience members, I would, you know, in a friendly, you know, way, but like ask them, oh, what was your favorite part of the show? And what did you think about that? And what, what made you come and see this show today? You know, and it's, it's fun conversation and you're engaging with somebody, but I was learning things about publicity and PR and what was attracting people to buy tickets, why they bought tickets, what their reactions and responses were. And it's, it was a way of gathering that information that even people that work for PR agencies probably don't get because they're not interacting with audiences on a daily basis. So, you know, I mean, to even little things like, oh, I have to do this accent for this audition. Great. I'm going to do that accent the whole time I'm working today. Um, No, that's incredible. No, but that's incredible. I've I've heard other actors talk about doing that too. I mean, it's the best way to learn an accent is to sort of walk through the world in that accent order your coffee in it, et cetera, and just practice it. At first, people will be like, what are you doing? But then at the end of the day, they'll be like, oh, what part of Ireland are you from? Right. (laughs) You know? Because the boredom is something that's very difficult for me and very frustrating. And I'm very aware of when, um, of feeling kind of depressed of when I feel like valuable time is just being wasted. Mm -hmm. And a lot of times, a lot of day jobs, that's kind of what it is. You know, you're, you have to do it to survive, but feeling like, your mind and, you know, your essence aren't being utilized. And so any way that you can make that time work for you, you know, if you're, if you're doing something that's sort of not super interesting and isn't using up all your brain power, great. You know, you can write in your head just as much as you can on a piece of paper. So I'm going to spend this time while I'm doing this job, you know, well and effectively and not, you know, skimping on the job that I'm supposed to be doing, but I'm going to answer every question about this character that I have. I'm going to go through and, you know, work on my beat sheet in my head. I'm going to go back home tonight with answers to all the questions that I don't know about so I can hit the ground running and have the answers and, you know, get a lot down on the page. So there's, there's a lot that you can do, um, regardless of what you're physically doing to sort of survive and make it interesting for yourself and utilizing that time to achieve your goals, even though it seems like it's wasted time there's ways that you can sort of play games with yourself to, to utilize it in a constructive way. That's yes. (laughs) I just say yes to everything you just said. You you mentioned it a few times talking about, you know, if, if this job is sort of soul sucking or if you're doing something you don't really want to do, or you can get sort of, we're all, you know, sort of depressed doing something. I would say almost in every single episode so far, we have just inadvertently touched on on the topic of mental health. Um, mm-hmm. And it's it's so important. If you don't mind, maybe yeah. you could share with us, like, what are some of the things that you do when you are having one of those moments where you're not loving what you're doing in between jobs, in between shows, and having sort of a an off day or time? What are some of the touchstones that are important for you to sort of get back to neutral? Yeah. Um, Well, the thing is, the tricky thing is, I don't think there's any magical answer for it. And I wish there were, because there's a lot of times that you just, you know, you're feeling how you're feeling and it's awful. I think one of the things that can be helpful, and it's, it's interesting. It's something that, you know, we all learn about and know as performers and writers, you know, we, we, you'll always hear in, you know, talking about writing or giving notes or something like the characters need to be active. You know, this is a passive character. They need to be active. How can we make them more active? And I think that 
I've discovered a lot of times when maybe we're feeling the most down is because we feel like there's no way for us to be active. There's no way for us to do something to make, we feel caught in this passive place. You know, if I'm, if I'm working in a job that's soul sucking and I want to be performing in a show that, you know, pays my bills, I can't magically go and make that happen. You know, Mm -hmm. I can audition, I can work on my craft and stuff, but I can't go and make it happen in the way that this is a terrible analogy. Um, but if I really want pasta for dinner, I can go somewhere and I can get pasta and I can make that thing happen. And it doesn't work the same way for everything. So what I try to do is in those moments, I try to think of any way that I can be active in changing my situation and doing something that will make it positive or make me feel better. And that could be as small as I need chocolate right now. Great. That's what we're going to do. Awesome. But in the longer haul, it can be things like, uh, well, great. So you know what, starting from now, I'm going to save up this much of my paycheck and I'm just going to put on the show myself, or I'm going to, you know, tomorrow morning, I'm going to submit this show to five places or just any, anything that you can do to be active. And sometimes it's, it's bigger things. If your job is really, really soul crushing, great. Starting tomorrow, I'm finding a new job by the end of the week. And it's going to happen because I don't deserve to be in this situation anymore. That gets, that gets a little more complicated because sometimes you are in a situation that you're more like, dear God, please don't let me lose this job because it's going to be awful if I do. And that can cause a lot of stress too. But I think trying to find ways to be proactive and active instead of feeling passive in your life, like there's nothing that you can do to make it feel better. If you have people that you can talk to, talk to them. I think being clear and vocal about what we're going through is is helpful. I mean, sometimes we can be tempted to, you know, we're talking to somebody and we're just like, oh yeah, I'm, you know, sort of feeling down. It's okay. And this and that, the more you can be really clear of, you know what, I'm feeling really depressed because my job is soul crushing right now. And I don't know what to do about it. It gives someone else then the opportunity to practically help you on a specific thing. So I think being really clear in our communication with ourselves and with other people and identifying what the actual problem is with any situation, I think is 90% of the battle. If you're feeling down, the more you can really narrow it down to, well, what is it in this moment that's making me feel this way? Is it my job? Is it that I feel discouraged in what I'm trying to do? Is it just that this one person was really mean and talked in a bad way to me, you know, but figuring out what it is will then help and empower you to figure out, great. So then what can I do to fix that specific situation? Right. And that, but that again, it's, it's, that's great when it all works. And sometimes it's really difficult and frustrating. And I think that there's a unique frustration with people in the arts because we need specific kinds of day jobs that allow us to leave them at a moment's notice when we get a gig that allow us to have a flexible schedule because we don't know when we either need to either go on an audition or be available for rehearsals for something. And most jobs that allow for those things are relatively menial labor. And they're things that, you know, maybe in the world's view are things that like, oh, the college student does to pay bills while they're in college before they're looking for their real career. And a real career is defined as something that's a nine to five that, you know, has a 401k. And the truth is artists are like some of the most intelligent people on the face of the planet. And I think that it's a real shame that they're not 
being utilized in the workforce in ways that both challenge them and raise up a company or industry. Right. That also, you know, give them the flexibility because there's immense resources being being wasted on these incredible people that are stuck in jobs that they a lot of times shouldn't really be doing Mm -hmm. because it's the only thing that will allow them to pursue what they want to be doing. And I think there's a real disconnect. And I do think there's a lot of places that take advantage of that, that they know that they're getting labor from people that are incredibly intelligent, really hard workers, phenomenal, and they can take advantage of them because they need flexibility and and whatnot. And I think that it's really wrong. And I don't know what the answer is, but I think that that's part of the problem. Ah, well, I couldn't agree more. (laughs) I'm just like, preach on that topic as well. (laughs) We hope you've enjoyed part one of our chat with Ashley. Tune in next week for the conclusion of our amazing conversation with her. This podcast was created and produced by Heather Corrigan and Robin Lai. This episode was directed by Robin Lai with assistance from content editor Neve McAuliffe. Post-production by JMM Latom and mastered by Jen Grossman and Flint Rhodes. Special thanks to Boom Integrated and Adrian Glover. If you've enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen and share it with all of your friends. Tune in next week as we bring you more women's stories that are totally badass and dramatic. <laughs>